You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Today is from Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. But rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so in the movie Jurassic Park, Dr. Ian Malcolm, who's played by Jeff Goldblum, famously says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And here, he's talking about how the scientists were recreating these dinosaurs uh, without pausing to think about the ramifications that this could actually have on those around them, right? And well, I mean, it's an old movie, so we all know what happens. Things go wrong, the dinosaurs get out of their cages, people lose their lives, and there's chaos everywhere. And all in all, Dr. Malcolm was proved right. Just because we could, it doesn't mean we should. And I think this famous quote from Jurassic Park actually captures the heart of what Paul is communicating to us here in our text today. He's saying as Christians, we have new and wonderful freedoms to live our lives in ways that glorify God by enjoying his creation. But he's also saying just because you're free to do something, it doesn't mean it's the something that you should do. See, if you've been with us this year, then you know that we've been working our way through Paul's New Testament letter to the Romans. And we've been trying to show you, we've been saying this over and over again, but we've been trying to show you that the book of Romans is really about how God is forming a new humanity full of the life and light of his kingdom. And he sends us back out into this brutal and broken world around us to be a counterculture in our culture. And while we could say that the first 11 chapters dealt with God's glory in saving sinners, these last few chapters have been about how God is most glorified in the lives of those sinners that he saved. The front end of the book was about orthodoxy. It was theology. It was doctrine. But these last few chapters are about orthopraxy, about godly Christian living. He's essentially saying, I've taught you gospel doctrine, but now we need to work on your gospel culture. 
Because Paul does not want the Roman church or our church here today to receive the terrifying rebuke of the Ephesian church from Jesus in Revelation 2. Right? He says, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Right? He's saying, your statement of faith is impeccable. You can, spot sen- or you can spot heresies from centuries away. But you don't even love those sitting in the pews next to you. And so while this may not be weighty theology that we grasp with our minds, but to be honest, that's the easy stuff. Paul is teaching us how this theology looks in action. And because we're all sinners, that's actually really difficult. See, but like a good spiritual father, Paul doesn't just tell us what we shouldn't do, but he also tells us what we should do. And this is an important point. We've said this before, but sanctification, which is the process of God making us more like his son Jesus, it's not simply about repressing sin, but actually replacing it with godliness. And so I believe the main point of this text, and so my main point today is that this, in love, God's people pursue peace, Because in love, God's peace has pursued his people. In love, God's people pursue peace because in love, God's peace has pursued his people. This means we're not a people that seek to disunify. We're not a people that seek to hinder others around us. We're not a people that seek to only have peace in here between us and God. No, but we're a people who actively seek to pursue peace with our brothers and sisters because God has gone to such great lengths to make peace with us in Christ. And I want to look at that point today um, in three headings. We'll We'll work through the text in three points. Two types of Christians, two types of freedom, and one way of love. Two types of Christians, two types of freedom, and one way of love. So point number one, two types of Christians. See, traditions and habits, they can, they can be really difficult to rewrite in us, right? For instance, we've been meeting here. This is our sixth week here in this building. We've got our services here. Our offices are here. Basically, all the operations happen here. But at least three times a week, I get in my truck, and I head to work, and I'm, before I know it, I'm downtown. And it's because it's my habit. The last few years, I just when I go to work, I go downtown, I know that I don't work there anymore. Don't get me wrong. I know it. But I'm also used to it. And so without thinking, I just fall back into my old ways. But traditions are more than simple muscle memory, like me getting in my truck and going to work. They can be identity forming, right? In a sense, the traditions that you participate in, the culture that you were raised in, they become a part of who you are. And the Jews in the first century exemplified this, right? And in some ways, it's their traditions that lead us into the issues that we find in our texts that we've been looking at the last few weeks. All right, look with me in verse 13. Paul writes, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Here, Paul is finishing off the implications of the thoughts that we looked at last week. Remember last week he was addressing both the strong and the weak Christians in Rome, but his main criticism was directed at those who are weak. 
The weak believers were standing in judgment over the strong because of preferential disputes, preferential differences. The weak believers, um, and, and so Paul's conclusion to them was don't judge people for their actions where Scripture hasn't bound them because there's an ultimate judgment seat that we're all going to have to stand before. And guess what? None of us are sitting in it. And so there's no reason for us to pre- pretend to be that judge here when we're really not. But beginning in verse 13, Paul corrects this imbalance, and he begins to focus on correcting the strong Christians. Don't don't worry, he's got words for both, but he really focuses on the strong Christians. Because while the weak Christians were judging the strong for their actions or inactions on on certain topics that the strong Christians were using, uh, what we see, though, is that the strong Christians were using their liberties in unloving ways. The weak Christians were being judgmental over these preferential issues, but the strong Christians were using their liberties in ways that weren't actually loving to their brothers and sisters. And ultimately, those liberties were becoming a stumbling block or a hindrance. And the word can be translated uh, literally like a snare or a trap for their fellow Christians. The strong Christians were causing their weaker brothers to sin. And so Paul, to make his point, decides to focus on the issue in the Roman church of eating and drinking. There were a few points in our text last week, but he really narrows in on something. All right, let's put this into practice and look at eating and drinking. And see, as we've mentioned before in this series, Paul is writing to the Roman church at a time when the Jews were, they were reintegrating into the life of the church after being held out for a time. And so while there may have been a lot of harmony around an issue like this one for some time, that's now gone because these Jewish Christians, they've come back into the church and they bring their culture and their upbringing into their church with them. They bring their whole selves, their identity. They bring their traditions and their culture, and these things can be really difficult to just change. As an example, when I do um, premarital counseling, one of the things that I cover with a couple is that the man and the woman, they're becoming their own family now. And so what this means is that they need to be aware of the ways that they've been shaped by their individual families and how there may be points of tension in the future because, well, he wants to put the Christmas tree out before Thanksgiving because that's how his family did it. Well, but she wants to put the Christmas tree out the week of Thanksgiving because that's how her family did it. Traditions can't be just simply rewritten in us like that. And the Jews had a distinct tradition. See, under God's covenant with Israel, after he brought them out of Egypt, there was this whole list of foods and and cleanliness laws that the Israelites had to adhere to because they were were God's special people, right? And And in part, it was their obedience to these food laws that set them apart from all the other peoples of the world. This was one of the ways that they distinguished themselves as different and special in the eyes of God. And in centuries of exile that we read about in the Old Testament, the Jews pressed into these traditions, in a sense, to maintain their identity. As they were exiled, they no longer had their borders to look to, so they had to look to their traditions to give themselves an identity. But as Jesus comes on the scene, inaugurating the new covenant, he begins to peel back these regulations, and he sends his disciples out with a gospel message that compels folks to live lives of freedom, and rest in in the rest that he gives them. In this gospel, in its wake, it has this mercy and grace, and it brings liberty and freedom. And the gospel writer Mark helps us to see this really, really clearly. 
In Mark 7, in a discussion with the Pharisees, Jesus begins talking about what truly defiles a person. And see, the Pharisees, they think it's food and adhering to the traditions that keep a person clean. But Jesus says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark's just going to keep it a buck. And he, he says, like, I'm going to interpret this for you. Thus he declared all foods clean. In case you didn't get it, this is what Jesus meant by this statement. And we even see Paul in our text today twice acknowledging this. And, and so we've already got that issue. But then we add to it that it's probable that some of the food and drink in question was actually being offered to idols before it made its way to the plates at the church potluck after service. But we know from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that his ruling would have been the same because in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, idols have no real existence. And so it's the same. They were free to eat it all. But like Christmas decor amongst newlyweds, what we're seeing here is that the Jew, with the Jews is that old habits die hard. The truth that all foods are clean doesn't simply erase what their conscience is telling them is wrong. Not indifferent, or, or not difference of opinion, wrong. Their whole history, their whole tradition has ingrained in them that this is wrong. And so the Jews are the weak Christians in view here, but Paul's correction is to the strong Christians. The strong are causing their weak brothers to sin by using their liberties in unloving ways. The strong are eating and drinking, and the weak maybe even are joining in, even when they think it's wrong. Look at verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. And see, this is an important point. And Paul's a genius here, right? Because he uses this rhetorical move where he gets them on his side first. He says, hey, I'm on your team. I, I, see, I believe like you do. Everything really is clean. But then he says, but not everyone feels like we feel. Not everyone believes like we believe on this. Not everyone knows what we know. And then later in verse 23, in our passage, Paul's going to say that on a matter like this, if your actions are pushing people past their consciences, then it's sin for them. Because if their participation is not from a faith that endorses it, it's sin. And Jesus says it like this. He says, it's better to be tied to a rock and drowned in the sea than to cause a Christian to sin. And so Paul takes that really seriously. And he's distinctly unwilling to push people past their consciences on issues where Scripture gives no command or prohibition. See, the conscience is really important, and we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But part of the reason Paul is unwilling to push people past their conscience is because it's actually a really helpful guardrail. And I'm not saying it's infallible. I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's helpful. And once that guardrail is seared or weakened or broken, if people are willing to violate their conscience on, a, on this matter of preference, then they're going to be more willing to violate it on an essential matter down the road. And so Paul's instruction is for the strong to accommodate those with a weaker conscience to keep them from sin and ultimately from destruction. All right, Paul puts it in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. 
by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. But for the same reasons of tradition and cultural upbringing, a teaching like this that tells the strong to lay down their liberties to accommodate the weak can actually be really difficult for us. So let's look at point number two, two types of freedom. Eric Foner, who is a professor of American history at Columbia University, wrote an article for the New York Times some years ago uh, where he's discussing the concept of freedom in the United States. And he wrote this. The dominant meanings of freedom have centered on political democracy, unregulated free enterprise, low taxes, limited government, and individual choice in matters like dress, leisure activities, and sexual orientation. He's saying freedom in the United States means my money is mine and to be used how I deem is appropriate. He's saying it means my choices are mine and to be made how I deem right. It means that every decision that comes from in here ultimately should center upon what I want. It has a distinct focus on the individual and an utter lack of constraints upon the individual. Because in America, you can't truly be free if there's anything constraining you. And see, we see this in in women and men in both the left and the right political, right? Like, he's not, we're not going to single out one group here. They may disagree on how actions like this look in real life, but both desire individual autonomy. Both want the sole ability to choose what is ultimately right and wrong for themselves. And this is because they're both operating from the same American understanding of what freedom truly means, We've both been brought up in the same culture. And see, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Because it's the same lie that Adam and Eve bought in the garden, right? The serpent comes and he says, you won't surely die. If God really loved you, then he'd let you make decisions for yourself. If he's constraining you at all, then it means that he's holding something good back from you. And this same notion of freedom is what Paul is coming against in his letter to the first century Romans. And so we need to do some work against our own culture and our own upbringing and our own tradition today and see that true freedom isn't the idea of freedom that we've grown up believing that it is. Look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, see, Paul says the kingdom of God, it's about righteousness. It's about peace. It's about joy. And see, so there's, there's righteousness. And what, what Paul means here is it, it's, it's the love the Lord your God part of our Christianity. It's, it's, us, it's the vertical level. It's us obeying the commands that he's given to us. But then he says it's about peace, which is really what this text is about. And that's, that's the, love, the love your neighbor as yourself stuff. That's the love your brothers. Love, your, love one another. That's all this horizontal level here. And then he says, if you're doing that, then what follows is a distinct joy in the Holy Spirit that cannot be taken away from you despite your circumstances. And this is what Paul is saying the kingdom of God is. It's this life. 
But the strong Christians in the Roman church thought that living in the kingdom of God meant that they have no constraints. That's what Paul means here by eating and drinking. They thought that they, it meant that I can just indulge in my liberties. I can do what I want. But back in verse 15, Paul says that if a person is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. And I feel like every one of us in the room understands that if we're not walking in love, then we can't be walking in the ways of the kingdom. See, and the word grieved in verse 15 is actually really, really interesting. We see it used a lot in the gospel accounts. And some examples are this, like Jesus comes up to the rich young ruler and he tells him, sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and you come and follow me. And it says that the rich young ruler, he was grieved because he had many possessions. He was saddened because of this. Or again, we see it on the night of the Last Supper, where Jesus is eating with his disciples, and he says, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. And it says they're grieved, wondering if it's them. A distinct anxiety has come over them, wondering, is it me, Lord? And then a little bit later, we see it as Jesus is kneeling to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's peering into the cup of God's wrath that he's about to take for you and I. It says that he's grieved. If you've got an ESV in your lap, it's going to say sorrowful, but it's the same original word. And so Paul is saying to the strong Christians in Rome, he's saying, your choices are causing deep grief and anxiety and distress in your fellow Christians. And for you to keep acting in a way that produces this is utterly unloving. This is not the kingdom of God. Love does provide freedom, but one who is truly free is happy to be constrained by love. He says, just because you could, it doesn't mean you should. So, see, love for our brothers, it has to overwhelm us. It has to overwhelm our own personal preferences and personal interests. When we think think through these types of issues, our questions can't only be centered on ourselves. Right? We, it can't simply be, well, what do I want to do? Or, or it can't be, well, how does this impact me? Because, let me just put it bluntly, that's simply not how a Christian thinks. That's not how a Christian reasons. That's not how a Christian makes decisions. A Christian thinks, yes, how do these things impact me? But more importantly, how do my decisions impact those around me? Not only what's best for me, what's best for those around me? And let's just, I mean, let's just apply this to the obvious. Can we talk for a minute? Let's apply this to the obvious. A real practical application that all seven seven days a week we are all dealing with is masks and vaccines. Right? And so I just have this question for you. Have your decisions on this issue been influenced mainly by thoughts that center on yourself? Have you been maybe saying like, well, I'm going to take the vaccine because I don't want to get covid Or maybe you're saying, well, masks are uncomfortable for me, so I'm not going to wear them. Or maybe you're saying, no one can tell me what to do. Or maybe even even if I get COVID, I probably won't be that sick. I'll probably just get past it and get over it. Don't underestimate how strong of a sway the culture that we've been raised in has on us. See, we've been indoctrinated by a culture that tells us, don't give your freedom up for anyone. 
We live in a country whose mantra these days from both the left and the right is my body, my choice. They're saying, you can't tell me to give up what this country has told me I'm free to do. I don't care who it benefits. These are my freedoms. These are my rights in this country. And I don't care if you want me to do it. I'm not going to do something I don't want to do if I don't have to. See, but one author says it like this. If you cannot put a freedom down, you are enslaved to that thing rather than enjoying it rightly. See, maybe our enslavement is to the American concept of freedom altogether. Maybe some of us aren't strong Christians, but instead we're just really strong Americans. See, love for our brothers and sisters at times must cause us to do things that we wouldn't have done if it was just up to me and you. Otherwise, it's not love. At least not for others. It's love for yourself. But like I said, the beautiful thing here is that Paul is not only telling us what we should not do, but he's telling us what we should do. Look at verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. He's saying, since you shouldn't use your freedom to tear down, here's what you should do. Use your freedom to build up. So, so what are we supposed to do here from this, from this verse? Pursue peace and mutual upbuilding. Or we could put it like this. Make disciples. See, mutual upbuilding here means edification of one another. And edification means uh, construction, or, or properly, it means building an edifice which serves as a home. But it also means spiritual advancement. And so we're supposed to be very interested in the spiritual home building of one another. What Paul is really calling us to do here is make disciples. Now, as we said earlier, Paul takes a person's conscience very seriously. And even though he has a high view of the conscience, what he's not saying, and I need you to hear me on this, that a weak conscience is a free pass. He's just saying that this is an area for discipleship. It's an area that needs to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and worked out in community. John Stott says it like this in his commentary. He says, alongside this explicit instruction to not violate our conscience, there's an implicit requirement to educate it. Right? It's like this. If you were teaching someone how to swim, maybe you're an expert swimmer, but you wouldn't just take this newbie and throw him in the deep end of the pool. Instead, you'll show them the fundamentals in the shallow end where they can still touch the bottom. And as they pick it up, then you help them so that they can venture out to eventually where their feet can't touch anymore. This is discipleship. See, you can swim in the deep end, but go hang out with them in the shallows until they're ready to join you. See, Paul is calling those that are truly strong in Christ to make disciples. Go hang out in the shallows. He's not saying that you need to demand what your brothers and sisters must do because that's legalism. That's cold religion. And to be honest with you, that's really easy. He's not telling us to make people violate their conscience. He's saying make disciples as peacemakers in the Christian community. Right? The Great Commission isn't just about making converts, but it's about making holistic disciples. It's not just about welcoming people into the household of faith and saying, make yourself comfortable. It's about showing them where the bathroom is and, and where you can find the cups and, and how to work the finicky dishwasher. 
It's teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, Jesus says. And so you strong Christians, go to where your weaker brothers and sisters are and help them sort through these difficult and meaningful issues as Christians. Help them ask the questions like, hey, there's no command here. How can I love the Lord my God best in this situation? How can I love my neighbor as myself here? And wait. I mean, it doesn't happen immediately. Wait. See, and Paul himself, he exemplified this, right? He wasn't okay just being at peace in himself. See, a lot of people think that being a peacemaker is just being okay. I'm, between me and God, I'm good. Or maybe you think, I feel like this is a lot of us, it's at least me. Being a peacemaker is just not rocking the boat. No, but in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, he became all things to all people in order that he might win some to Christ. Rather than using his freedoms and potentially destroying the work of God, he exercised true freedom by laying his liberties down in order that he might bring folks to Christ. He pursued peace with others at all costs because he knew that he had been pursued by the Prince of Peace himself at such a great cost. And point number three, and we're done. One way of love. See, the Apostle John tells us that God is love. And so when we're wondering what it means to walk in love, as Paul is calling us to here, yes, we, we can and we should look to his example, and we can look to those around us that we know that have really displayed this self-sacrificial love in the Christian community. But if God is love, if we really want our hearts to be changed, see, because we're not after just behavior modification as Christians. We want changed hearts We want God to transform us from the inside out. And so if we want to do that, if we want the power to be able to exercise true freedom like this, then we need to gaze upon the God-man himself, Jesus Christ. See, texts like this, we've said it, they come against our culture that we've been raised in. They come against everything in us that tells us what freedom really is. Because you know what? Old habits die hard. It's because our world continually tells us to just do what feels right. Follow your heart. Be what you want to be. Live out your freedoms. Indulge yourself. But the call of Jesus is to deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross and follow him. As often as this world tells you to indulge yourself, you need to run to Christ and hear him say, deny yourself and follow me. Because Jesus, the only completely free being in the universe, God himself, gave up some of those freedoms in the incarnation. The second person of the triune Godhead, he became man. And he subjected himself to hunger, to thirst, to loss, to ridicule, to abandonment, to crucifixion, and even death, death on a cross. But why? The question always has to be why. It's so that he could make his enemies his friends. Man, we have trouble doing this when it means making our friends our close friends. But Jesus did this to me. He lost his life. He gave his life up so that he could make his enemies his friends, and we could lay hold of that truth by faith. See, Jesus was the sinless one who was made to be sin so that we sinners could be made his righteousness. He was the rich one who was made to be poor so that we, through his poverty, could be made rich. And he was the truly strong one who became weak so that we who are truly weak, despite what this world is telling us, could be made strong in him. 
don't you see? This is, this is how we lay hold of this freedom. This is the way of love. This is the kingdom of God. Only by faith in the one who gave up his freedom for us. It's not until we see the weight of our sin debt. Until you really understand the weight of what you've been saved from. And then you see the, oh my gosh, the overwhelming flood of his generous mercy and grace. And so friends, don't let this word detour you. But instead, would you find hope here? Look to the cross. See the king of glory giving up all his freedom so that we would have life. Let that truth penetrate deep into your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you where you still fall short, where you're becoming more influenced by the values of this earthly kingdom that we live in and not the values of the eternal kingdom of which we are true citizens. And then repent. This is the way of Christianity, repentance and faith over and over again. Repent of your sin. Turn again to your Savior and run. Don't walk. Run to his throne of grace where you're going to find mercy and help in your time of need. Run to him who tells you in exchange for your heavy burdens, I'll give you my light one. In exchange for your difficult yoke, I'll give you my easy one. And then in freedom, live lives of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.